This podcast was originally the audio for a work of the same name for the Nearly On Red YouTube channel, found at youtube.com slash c slash nearly on red. Though not intended to be a standalone podcast, viewers frequently consume my videos for their audio content only, so I have duplicated my work in this format to hopefully save people a step. A full list of content and platforms can be found at nearlyonred.com or the short link nearly.red, N-E-A-R-L-Y dot R-E-D. Enjoy! Hi everyone, welcome to the Not Quite Daily Show, Winter 2018 Season, Episode 1. My name is Theta, and for this season I have chosen the anime Darling in the Franks for closer analysis. I confess to having some reservations about this series. But since I don't analyze sequel series at this point, and since I won't analyze things that aren't being legally simulcast in the US, this season's pickings were a little bit more slim than usual. There are some fine shows this season, but a lot of the ones I liked do not lend themselves very well to my style of analysis. And the ones that do either largely had some element that gave me pause, or simply weren't remarkable enough to be worth all this effort. Now, I have avoided doing two core shows before now, but there are some moments of real promise in this episode, and I'm also very excited about doing an original work rather than an adaptation. I'm very sensitive to spoilers, so having no source material is a big plus. Now, I think right off the bat, some people are going to draw parallels between this and Evangelion, and to be fair, there is some seeming cast overlap. There's an Asuka, there's a Shinji, there's a Misato, and... Wait, who would Rei be? Oh. There will also probably be some comparisons to the movie Pacific Rim. I mean, okay, surprise giant beasts emerge and attack cities, and then it's dual piloted robots to the rescue. That part is the same. But the way the partnership works in this series is fundamentally different, which I think changes the whole thing into a different type of story entirely, but we'll talk about more of that in theme. For those of you who have followed my channel so far, we're going to do a modified version of the long look for this series, uh, which is why the boards look a little bit different than they have lately. Let's get started. The scenes which begin this series include two sets of narrations, allowing us to hear the thoughts of what appear to be the two main characters. Both are reflecting on the series' first major symbol, the Jian bird from Chinese mythology. It only has one wing, and therefore can only fly in male-female pairs. Now, despite both characters thinking about the same thing, the presentation is different for each, and what the bird's predicament means to each is different as well. The girl, Zero Two, thinks the Jian pairing dependency is beautiful, even though they are imperfect, incomplete creatures. The boy, Hiro, instead imagines what it must be like for a Jian bird before they find a partner. To him, they are pitiful creatures, and rather than focusing on the pairing itself, he dwells on the alternative. Now, each of their internal monologues on the Jian bird cut directly to the same image, the giant white transport ship that looks itself like an oversized white bird with huge wings. She is already in it, flying up in the sky, but longs to submerge herself in the waters below. He is below, trapped behind the glass dome, musing on what it may mean to never be able to fly. 
both of their ruminations are intercut with scenes to help us first characterize them. Zero Two rides in the transport, obsessing about taking a bath, and seems worried about how she smells. She wants to swim in the ocean, or some clear water, or just wants to swim somehow, and she is described by the Doctor character as being a high-maintenance girl. Her pestering of the highly bandaged man, who we'll later learn as her partner, gives her a callous and even narcissistic impression. This seems quite at odds with the wistful and earnest thoughts we had just heard her profess about the Janbird, leaving us to wonder if she has an inward personality that differs from an outward personality, or if the person speaking about the bird is either her past or maybe future self. We also get a sense of naivete about her character through her questions about the ocean in an environment that we can clearly tell will not contain an ocean. She also licks herself, proclaiming that she hates how she tastes. Now this, coupled with her sniffing of herself and the fact that she, you know, has horns, all give her a little bit of a bestial, primal edge. These two scenes of hers, then, are very different in the type of character they present, and we get to wonder which, if either, is the full picture of the girl we meet at the outset. Hero's thoughts, contrastingly, are actually played over its own scene, which begins with him reading texts from a fellow parasite cadet. By their content and his expression, you can tell he is out in this little garden to be away from others. He is interrupted from this by a normal two-winged bird attempting to escape the area, which bloodies itself on the glass and is no longer able to fly. It may be that this is how he thinks of himself, not as half of a Jan pair, but as a two-winged bird that is broken and can't escape. The result is the same, though, a bird that can't fly, and Hero seems to identify with this idea, resulting in the subdued despondency he exhibits through most of the scenes. He is not thinking about some possible future in which he can fly, but the reality of the present in which he cannot. This pair of scenes allows us to meet a few other characters briefly as well. There's the man only referred to as the Doctor, or Hakase. There's Zero Two's current and injured partner, and a red-headed woman whose role isn't yet clear. We also see that the cadet girl we'll find out is named Ichigo, is the one who is texting Hiro, and also that her code number is 015. We also glean a few details of the world, such as the blasted landscape that's covered with what look like drilling operations, the fact that their destination is something called Plantation 13, and the glass biome-like spot Hiro is in that contrasts with the rest of the landscape. As far as the technological state of this world, we learn that there are flying machines, giant flying machines, and the presence of whatever augmentations or prosthetics the Doctor is encased in. The uniforms among the ship passengers and Hero as well suggest that this is all related to a military of some variety, as well as the partner's injuries being due to the last battle. Now nothing is clearly stated as far as any goals or conflicts during this part, but you can start to see the shape of what Zero Two and Hero might desire. In part two, these next scenes give us a quick look to learn a little bit more about other characters in addition to the main two, and begin to color in the details of the world for us. The first is a room full of what are obviously Hero's peers, same age and uniform, gossiping about someone called the Partner Killer, who we can surmise is Zero Two. This is actually the first name we hear applied to Zero Two. We don't learn that name until later, and so our impression of her must now also include this unflattering nickname, and we also learn that her antics are enough to earn her a nickname and a reputation in the first place. 
This group then shifts from talking about one of our main characters to talking about the other one, as the girl Ichigo's attempts to raise Hiro on a communicator identical to his are fruitless. They then speculate about his mindset and his future. Now while there isn't really enough here to give us much of a picture of these eight, we do get enough to sense that they'll have individual characterizations in time. They also help us to get a first picture of the situation Hiro finds himself in, and the fact that some other character, named Naomi, is caught up in it. They are sympathetic toward her, but have a variety of reactions towards him. The only one of this group given a name so far, the girl Ichigo, shows the first hints of thinking of Hiro as something more than just a peer, so she gets just a tad more characterization at this point. The other half of our cast is then shown in the next scene, as we see them deplaning in a hangar large enough for that giant transport plane. They use the doctor's age-related complaints to drop the tidbits that they were transporting massive cargo, and it hints that this is out of the ordinary. This is planting a mystery for us to be resolved in future episodes. We see, too, that in addition to the doctor, the security, and ultimately lots of adults, apparently, are covered in what seem like augmentations or machine interfaces of some variety. The old doctor is then given the characterization as a bit of a lecher out of the gate when he gooses the redhead. Maybe this just suggests that he does what he wants. Maybe this suggests that he does not respect the agency of others. Both could be consistent with the mad scientist vibe they are giving him so far, and neither bodes well for any other characters if they end up being involved in any trial or experiment he's in charge of. He refers to such a trial in the very next scene as they descend a massive web of escalators. The first trial run is referenced directly after speaking about the children's training. So we are given a link between the huge mystery cargo and the children's future. I think we are to infer that they will intersect. Our redhead asks him directly, why run that test case here with such a makeshift team, further highlighting that the whole affair is outside of the norm. The doctor is vague enough to suggest some secrecy, or else he just likes being inscrutable, and he refers to the geezers in Ape not understanding it, which suggests some type of bureaucracy and the fact that he might be at odds with it. The doctor is also the only one to notice when Zero Two slips away, but he seems more amused than troubled, continuing the impression of someone who isn't concerned about playing strictly by the rules. We get the first impression that her partner might be long-suffering at her hand, and also that Zero Two delights a bit in putting them out. She's watching to see that they notice her sneaking off and ditching part of her uniform, and shoots them a parting smirk. Now there are no real goals set out expressly by these scenes, but we can surmise that the Doctor has some as yet unknown goal that this trial run is a first step towards. In our conflicts category, we have this growing impression of Zero Two as someone who is reckless and dangerous, even fatal, to others. Our next part begins with Hero still following the injured bird. As he likely identifies with its plight, this is believable, and it leads him to traveling to a part of the plantation he'd never visited before. Now this is a primarily characterization-driven scene, and is the all-important first meeting between our main duo, but the scene does add a lot to world-building, so let's run through that first. When seeing the, uh, ocean, Hero says he never knew there was a place like this, suggesting either that he doesn't often hide among the trees, or else that this plantation is so massive it's possible to miss this oversized pond. Zero Two will later suggest that this is the largest body of water she's ever seen, though whether that says more about the world they're in or her own experiences, it's impossible to say right now. 
At the very least, oceans must exist in order for her to know about them. We learn that there are other parasite groups besides heroes, thanks to the differing uniform. And this is also the scene where we learn that the bandage guy is Zero Two's current partner. He's also the first one to use the pistol and stamen terms to refer to partner pairs. And he tells Hero that she is not the kind of pistol that just anyone can handle. Dude's not very self-aware, is he? We also learn the key fact that Hero is not able to pilot anymore, and what's more, he dragged his partner down with him. And because of this, he no longer has a place here. This explains both his malaise to this point and the conversation the other pilots were having about him earlier. At scene's end, we are finally given Zero Two's name, or what she gives as a name, and this leads to the curious detail that parasites don't normally have names. Now this doesn't jive with our experience of meeting Hiro and Ichigo and hearing about a Naomi girl, but we will revisit that. Now as to our characters and what we learn about them, Hiro's curiosity gets the better of him about the parasite uniform he sees, and he investigates more closely by picking up her panties? Why does this kind of thing even happen? I can't imagine doing the same thing in that situation as a first instinct. I don't even like accidentally wandering into the women's underwear section in Target. I realize that we are supposed to glean that Hero is naive and inexperienced with women, but this very next bit accomplishes this, where he sees Zero Two swimming naked, and is first awed, then embarrassed, and then finally overcome with curiosity instead. That's way more believable than establishing a death grip on a stranger's knickers as your go-to move. Anyway, once Hero fears that she's drowning, his first instinct is to rush in to save her, stranger or not. So at least that first instinct is one we can get behind. Rather than being in danger though, Zero Two was apparently just fishing and emerges in dramatic fashion. Okay, so this is probably the thing this episode does the worst. Don't have Hero tell me what he's feeling, show me! I mean, you did. I can tell he's under a spell. I can tell he's transfixed. You even use the black bar effect to briefly make the scene feel even more cinematic. I can gather he's stupefied just fine from the animations. The only interesting information in his thoughts, the fact that he finds the horns alluring, and also that it's his first experience with nakedness, could probably have been communicated some other way. Wouldn't it have been nice to have those bits spoken out loud where Zero Two could react to them? Wouldn't we know even more about her thanks to those reactions? Either way, she's not affected at all by being seen in the nude. She doesn't even seem to consider it a possibility that he could have been staring for that reason until she notices him grasping her underoos. Now, while her laughter at his misfortune seems a little contrived, I think what they're going for here is that she's relaxed with him. It may be that she rarely acts this way with other people, and she is the only person he seems happy around throughout the entire episode. She even switches from gently teasing him to thanking him for coming in after her, which kind of takes the sting out of her mocking. Now, like I mentioned, he finds her horns alluring. Whether he would have thought so in a different context is up for debate, but having her physical oddity mixed with his own surprise and excitement at her nakedness almost certainly shuffles the two together in his mind. She later seems delighted that he wasn't frightened by her horns, but if anything, the horns now have positive association for him as they coincide with his first ever glimpse of nakedness. For her part, being found alluring and desirable instead of frightening or detestable is potentially a big event for her. Now the scene also includes some contrasting characterizations. When explaining his piloting situation and that he doesn't have a place here anymore, Zero Two tells him that she's the same way, always alone because of her horns. 
Now she is drawing a parallel between them, that they are the same, and yet their actions here are very different. Just as she was unconcerned with her nakedness while he was uncomfortable, she is aggressive and confident, tackling and tasting him while he is uncertain and yielding. She likes his taste, it makes her heart race, contrasting with the way she said she didn't like her own taste back at the beginning of the episode. He is practically speechless, but she has words enough for them both. There's another contrast here too that may stray a little bit into theme, but we'll go ahead and talk about it here now. Hero is in a funk this episode because of his failure as a pilot and how it cost him a place to belong. To belong with the other cadets, to belong in the plantation, to belong in the society at all. He is in fear of leaving the society, of being an outsider to civilization. Zero Two, on the other hand, is tiptoeing along the edge of civilization altogether. As mentioned, she has aspects that are bestial, the tasting and the sniffing, and of course the horns. And in this scene, she's comfortable without the uniform of society, or, you know, anything, wrapped around her. She's aggressively forward with Hero, and she confidently asserts that she'll make him her darling, even though that probably breaks a lot of the rules they live under. Hero fears losing the sense of belonging he gets existing under the society, while Zero Two chafes under the same society as though it physically restrains her. Now all of this, and the contrasting place each of them is in, culminates in a moment where Hero has a chance to change. And while he reaches for her hand and the type of existence she leads, they're interrupted, and Hero returns to his former obedient, failed, defeated self. How fitting then that the last image of the scene is that two-winged bird crushed down to death. Now we do at least finally get a hint of a goal for Hero, which is to find a place to belong. Finding a partner is also a goal, but at this point he's ashamed at even admitting that he still wants a partner, and really the desire for a partner, at least right now, is just a step on the way to belonging. Conflict-wise, Zero Two's reckless danger is both reinforced and somewhat defrayed by the scene. The warnings against her at the end seem both genuine and probably justified, but her characterization in this scene makes her seem less like a force of nature, more like a free spirit. The next part of this episode is a long series of short scenes that really help us understand the situation the children are in at the outset. It begins with a grand ceremony celebrating the eight cadets moving on to the next stage of their training and service, a stage that Hiro and Naomi failed to make. The scale and ritualistic nature of this ceremony give the whole affair an almost religious vibe, and the character of Papa is introduced, heading the proceedings with all the trappings and mysteries of a priest. It seems like a wedding as much as any type of welcoming ceremony. We learn that the children are given numbers instead of names early on, something we probably guessed, and the children are also told that piloting Franks in male-female pairs is their sole purpose in life. Over the top of all of this, Papa says, turn your life into a blaze of glory and shed every last drop of blood you have. There's a certain fanaticism and authoritarianism given to Papa in this scene, and this really forms our initial characterization of him. We do get a little hint that maybe Ichigo is preoccupied with thoughts of Hiro, though thankfully it is implied and not thought out loud. We then finally get a clue to Hiro's full situation, as we cut to a building that looks an awful lot like a birdcage on the outside. Just in case you haven't gotten the children as birds metaphor to this point. We learn that Hiro and Naomi for sure, and probably the other children as well, are orphans, or at least all originate from an orphanage. 
While discussing plans to return there, we learn that Hiro has special permission to remain, but he refuses. Now this may seem at odds with his desire to belong, but when he goes outside and sees Naomi crying on the bench, the resulting flashback shows us a brief scene that is ostensibly the moment he failed. This failure, at least to him, means he has no place here anymore. Staying here wouldn't make him belong any more than leaving. At least that's how he feels right now. We also learn that Hiro is code 016 and Naomi is code 703. I think it's important actually that we learn their names first and their code second, but I'll talk a little more about that in theme. Finally, we get one of the best scenes in the episode as Hiro and Naomi are awaiting the giant orange plants that are coming to take them away. It's intercut with a short bit with the eight cadets on a subway or something, uh, but I'll come back to that. There is so much that is unsaid and yet understood in the way they stand apart from each other, downcast and facing the same way and speaking with pauses between their sentences. It's a conversation that's probably only happening because of the circumstances as Naomi tries to keep tight rein on her emotions, and Hiro continues his episode-long pattern of avoidance. But eventually, Naomi can't contain her frustration, both at her situation and at how different the two of them feel about his permission to stay. She accuses him of just running away from your partner and from yourself. She mentions how they've come so far. She references friends that have disappeared. Clearly the process so far required sacrifice and she's distraught that she can't continue and disbelieving that Hiro would turn down that chance, saying that she would definitely stay even if it killed her. Now Hiro, once she does lose her cool, seems to really hear her. He's surprised and distressed at her outburst. When we come back to the scene and Naomi is getting on the plant to leave, I think he's finally listening for the first time this episode to anyone besides Zero Two. He wasn't expecting this to be goodbye, especially not for good, but Naomi, for her part, is gonna plead with him one last time to stay, as she would if she were in his shoes. Now after she gets him with the case to the face, and it's clear that these are going to be their last moments, she talks about her name. Now this bit with her talking about liking the name the hero gave her, and then her losing her composure, this is one of those few flashes of greatness in this episode that really tilted me towards choosing the series. The scene is great because it invites us to imagine the missing backstory the past hope and the current disappointment, the sense of belonging that is encapsulated by the receiving of a name, and then that giving way to the isolation and separation. Even how her attempt to be strong in this moment contrasts so much with the girl crying on the bench. That distraught girl is who she is right now, but she attempts to give Hero some words and advice anyway, despite the implication that some part of the situation is his fault. This suggests to me a sense of needing to give back to him, that maybe in the past he was a source of encouragement for her and she's attempting to pay it forward. We may never actually know any of these details, but that doesn't matter really, because there's so much we can guess about the situation of the children in general and these two in particular, and even in Hero's character between what it is now and what it must have been before. It gets us wondering about the characters, giving them interesting unknowns, and it starts us down the path to empathy with them, the most critical part of creating characters. Despite being so short, this is such a great exchange. It's certainly much better than Hero thinking his thoughts aloud for us. Now for the brief little intercut scene, we see what looks like a subway map and the new cadets on a train car or something similar. This really suggests the immensity of this plantation. 
We also see that they have a type of battle suit that they've changed into for the startup part of the ceremony. And just like they are male-female opposite pairs, the suits are black-white opposites as well. Now, despite how huge this startup ceremony event is in their life, their conversation is about Hiro and Naomi. Whatever society may dictate, those two are not outsiders to this group. Anyway, one of Hiro's fellow cadets says that they could never tell what was going through his head, and they call him a crybaby. So it may be that the morose and intractable hero that we've known all through this episode isn't completely different from who he is normally. While discussing them, another remarks that their ship probably isn't headed to the garden. I've never even heard of any parasites coming back home. Well, this suggests that either the orphanage or maybe the region it's in is called the garden, but more importantly, it suggests that some other destination is intended for Naomi and Hiro despite the fact that the officials said they were returning to the orphanage, just in case there weren't enough hints that the authorities don't have the children's best interests at heart. Finally, in the last section, we finally get to see what all the fuss is about, as some monstrous thing we're apparently calling a klaxosaur emerges from the waste. Here then, all the work of setting up all the characters and situations throughout the episode finally gets its payoff, as they can shift between each of them as they realize the threat that has materialized. We first cut to Zero Two, who apparently can smell them before they even show up, and is very matter-of-fact about it. Then we cut to the cadets, eager to become official parasites, and confused when things go awry. There's a brief flash to Papa and an attendant, and it reveals that they are projections or holograms or something. Then it cuts to the doctor and the redhead, who note the fog rolling in with concern as they seem to understand the implication. Then finally it cuts to Hero, ignorant of anything being amiss, as he is still wrestling with Naomi's words. When he withdraws his initial step to get on the plant, it seems he is about to profess that he is reconsidered, but then the danger interrupts and all other matters are put aside. Now, as to the fight, I'm not gonna go blow by blow through this. The scene largely explains itself well, the characters give us enough information to infer what's going on, and the animation's clear enough that we really never lose track of the fight as it evolves. There are a few world-building details I'm going to lift out of it, though, so let's run through that. First is that apparently this is the first time Hero has ever seen a Klaxosaur. So much for Know Thy Enemy. Now, when it attacks the hangar, where Ichigo is waiting, there's a voice announcement that says, Garage 2 damaged, unfit for housing Delphinium. Well, Delphinium's not given any other explanation, but I think we can infer that it's some sort of radioactive or unstable substance somehow related to Franks and their operation. When Zero Two's Franks shows up in its beast form, the redhead refers to it as a stampede, which from context I'm guessing means that form. I'm guessing that also because right after that, we have this exchange between Papa and his neighbor where he remarks, what an ugly sight. Did she devour her stamen again? And the other says, it's hard to tell which is the real monster here. So at the very least, this is viewed as dangerous or deviant or unusual. Anyway, part one of our fight ends in a kind of stalemate and the beast Franks is thrown back and our unfortunate friend tumbles out. I'm not sure if he's dead or not, but that's actually kind of immaterial in the moment. Our two main characters then meet again, although this battlefield is a far cry from the tranquil forest pond. Now after Zero Two sheds her partner, she turns to go pilot the Franks alone, and each of them has a very different reaction to this. Hero is frantic and tells her that she'll die. She insists that she's not afraid of death. She actually says it twice and seems to be true. This is not her first rodeo. 
probably not the first time she's had a partner pushed to the brink of death or over it. They're in completely different mindsets right now, and yet they're both in a kind of crisis. Once again, alike, but different. When Hero says that you can't pilot Franks alone, she insists that she always is alone, which calls back to their earlier conversation by the waterside. Despite this, when he offers to pilot with her, it's her turn to be the hesitant one. She's skeptical and she asks him if he's ready to die, because she certainly is. Now he says that he doesn't know that, but he knows that he doesn't have a place to belong right now, which to him is no different from being dead. This seems to convince her that they are alike, or at least in a manner that actually matters to her. She likes the look in his eyes. She says she's excited by it, which is the second time that she has been excited by him. You know, earlier she told him, if you don't have a partner, just find another. And if you can't, take one by force. Well, she takes her own advice here, pulls him to her and gets a taste of him, kissing him, and then the Franks whirs to life. He will later say that the warm touch of her lips made my heart race, echoing her words, but he also says that he doesn't understand why. I think it's clear though that Zero Two understands why. Anyway, this kicks off the Franks transforming into something more human-like, and our doctor begins a pronouncement over the transformation that has the feel of a prayer or a prophecy, ritualistic words meant to be given extra weight when said just so. He then cries out, you're the best, Strelizia. Now, I won't be surprised if that ends up being the actual name of that Franks. The doctor seems like the kind of guy that would give code numbers to children and call other adults by their titles, but then have pet names for robots and other experiments. After the battle, right at the end, we learn that Zero Two belongs to a special forces unit that is assigned to that same ape organization that was referenced earlier. We also learn that she has Klaxosaur blood, which probably explains a lot of her idiosyncrasies. Apparently this fact is also not a secret, since the redhead reveals it to the fresh cadets. And then lastly, just as this episode began with each of the main characters' thoughts, it ends with each of them saying something or thinking something that relates back to those earlier scenes. Hero, who began by dwelling on the fate of a bird that never flies, is instead thinking that because he took this step of his own free will, he felt like he might be able to fly again. Zero Two began the episode by stating that she found the required partnership between the Jin birds to be beautiful, and she ends by looking down at Hero and saying, Found you, my darling. While their characters probably have a lot more to overcome and a lot more ways to change and grow, just inside this episode we have each of them moving a little bit closer to the world they desire. Also, in this last part of the episode, we finally have our series-wide conflict, the threat of the Klaxosaurs. Alright, so let's see where we are as far as goals and conflicts stand at the end of this episode. Goals and conflicts are the major movers of the narrative side of storytelling, and their emergence, changes, and completions are what give a story form and pace. Goals are up first, and they always belong to a character, even if the character is unknown or the goal is unknown. Now we have three we can pin down so far. The first is that Hero wants a place to belong. Now piloting the Franks is the only purpose that he's had in his life so far, but I think it's the actual belonging that this gives him that drives him. Piloting is just a means to that end. When he's trying to convince Zero Two to let him pilot with her, he says that not having a place to belong is the same as being dead, which tells you exactly how high he holds this goal. 
Zero Two, for her part, is a little more inscrutable. She finds the Jin Bird partnership beautiful, and so maybe a partnership is what she wants, but she also has a certain acceptance of her own solitude, and she pilots and fights out of a sense of duty. She wants a darling, but I feel like that's a manifestation of some other goal or desire. It's a step on the way to a goal, not a goal itself. We're gonna keep this as an unknown goal for now. Lastly, the doctor has an unknown goal of his own. We mentioned this already, but it's probably related to the test and the trial that was mentioned earlier on. And just like Zero Two, this is probably a step on the way to some greater goal. We just don't know what it is yet. Now for the conflicts side of things. Conflicts as I define them are distinct from setting, which among other things means that the conflicts must appear to be solvable. That is, that they can be overcome during the course of the story as we understand it. First up is the big series-wide one, which is the Klaxosaurs and the threat that they pose. Now the Klaxosaurs are attacking something in the plantation. Is it the population? Is it the structure? Or is it the Franks themselves, or some aspect of them? After all, it runs all the way around the perimeter to get to the garages where the new cadets have their Franks. And then once Zero Two engages it, it never focuses on anything else until it's destroyed. We don't know yet, we just know that they are a threat of some kind, and that's how we'll keep them. Now, in addition to that big top-level conflict, each of our main characters has a conflict of their own. Zero Two's conflict is that she devours her partners. She's the partner killer. That is a heck of a catch if you want to solve that first conflict. We're going to assume that this is solvable but ongoing until we know otherwise. Hero's conflict is that he has lost the ability to pilot. Now so far, other than the pairing part, we don't know what it means to pilot or what is even involved in that process. Whatever the ability is that he's lost is important enough to have changed his fate and Zero Two also believes that his ability can be awakened, that he can be brought back. Getting his ability to pilot back you might think would be a goal, but the loss of it is a detriment and potentially a danger. So it actually gets listed as a conflict. Now to talk a bit about theme. We're gonna do a slight deviation from how I normally do this for the premiere episode. Rather than assign names to the thematic patterns we recognize already, I'm gonna go through the potential thematic elements I notice, and over the next few episodes, the one that present themselves to be actually part of a pattern will get names and we'll track their progress from there. I fear that this might be a non-indicative first episode, so I don't wanna to jump too far down the wrong track before we have a better sense of the story's shape. Now back in the opening, I said we would examine how the partnership in this series differs from the Pacific Rim partnership, an obvious comparison. In Pacific Rim, you need two people who synchronize well, especially in fighting, who are then mentally and emotionally disciplined enough to stay focused in combat. And that is it. The partnership in Darling and the Franks appears to be different entirely. Needing the partners to be in male and female pairs plus they're referring to them as stamens and pistols, which are the sex organs of flowers, gives us a pretty big flag that there is a sexual undercurrent to the partner process. I mean, it's not just in the pistol and stamen nicknames or the way Zero Two refers to her partners as darling, but there's also the transformation of the Franks from something bestial into something humanoid. 
There was a ceremonial linking of the cadet partners together in something not unlike a marriage ceremony. And there's the choice of using adolescents as the pilots at all. I mean, adolescence is designated as its own stage in human development specifically because sexual maturation is such a transformative process. There's also the part where Zero Two stealing a kiss from Hero is what powers the Franks back up. And all the sexual tension between them in the pond scene is implied to be part of the reason she wants him as a partner in the first place. I think it's also noteworthy that her being female is apparently more important than her actually being fully human. Which again, just suggests that some sort of gender sexual dynamic is a critical part of this partner pilot process. So yes, very different. I'm sure it will be explored thoroughly. Uh, we potentially have a World of Children style story. Don't actually know enough to know that yet. But if we end up in a situation where the pilots, the cadets, are more or less separated and have to do things themselves apart from the adults, we might be straying into World of Children. Very common in anime. Next, I want to talk a little bit about Zero Two's swimming scene. Now, nudity can be used to show innocence and also vulnerability. Nakedness is not always for humor or titillation or just fan service. Now, I do think there is supposed to be sexual subtext here, but it's serving theme and characterization. It's not gratuitous. I think her nakedness and how nonchalant she is about it gives her a little bit of a contrast with other characters also. I pointed out a bit, but most of the adults are really covered up. Some, like Papa and his attendants or whatever, are actually completely encased, and the adults in the audience are only slightly uncovered. Even most of the guards and soldiers we've seen have facial coverings. The cadets' uniforms with their shorts and skirts actually seem like the most scandalous thing in the society, but this actually seems more like the hallmark of youth. Zero Two's complete nudity then sets her apart from every other character, and we're gonna have to watch to see if that is recurring. Now, the gin birds in particular, but birds and flight in general, are the most obvious symbols in this episode. I've spoken about it a bit already, and I won't rehash that. I thought instead we could consider some alternate takes on all the bird stuff so far. In the first scene, I likened the two-wing bird to Hero, that that's actually the way he sees himself rather than half of a gin bird pair. It's very brief, but when Zero Two pounces on him in the pond, a bird just like that flies overhead, as though suggesting this kind of closeness might make it possible for him to fly as well. When they are interrupted and split apart, the crushed bird now seems to indicate where his fate is headed. Destroyed by the careless machinery of the patrol car, a machine used to enforce order on society. But the crushed bird could also represent Naomi. She is broken in a sense, like the bird, and he tries to chase after her, save her, whatever. Instead, she runs from him and is crushed. Or, rather than her in particular, it could be the parasites in general, unable to survive or escape on their own. I think the whole birdcage building and the reference to the garden where they all come from really drives home the whole cadets as birds thing. The gin birds are obvious for this, but the ultimately doomed two-wing bird might be as important as well. 
The rough and unthinking machinery of whatever military or religious or authoritarian regime they strive under may crush them just as surely as that patrol car crushed the bird. One last thing on the Jin bird, I pointed out how both Zero Two and Hero's thoughts on the matter were interrupted by the same image, the, the giant white transport plane. It may be that no matter what their original thoughts on the Jin pairing, whatever is contained in that transport, the huge and mysterious cargo, may ultimately influence how they end up feeling about any kind of partnership. So all the way during the very first moments of this episode, we have two sets of images that we are associating with Zero Two. One is of something far less human than she is now, with red flesh and blue blood, longer horns and white hair. We see that it has a little tag or tracker or something on its ankle that says 002 on it, so we're assuming that it's her. The other is seemingly of her as maybe more human than she is now. We can't tell if she still has the horns or not in this image because of the hat, but she seems much more the picture of a carefree schoolgirl here than the character of Zero Two that we get familiar with over the rest of this episode. Now, it may be that one of these is a memory of her past, and the other one may be a dream of her future. The ordering of them suggests that the monstrous one is the past, and the schoolgirl one is the future, but it could be that they are both her future, or that neither of them is a memory or a real at all. They could both be dreams. This could be where she thinks she's going, or hopes she is, or maybe where she fears she's going. They might not be related to her past at all either. We can see that the uniform she's wearing matches the style that Hero and his cadets wear, but ultimately we intentionally don't have enough context to know what to do with these images. We'll have to come back to them. So there's a sense of the pilots, the, the children and all that as being disposable. I think we all get some dystopian death cult vibes from Papa and all his talk of bleeding out your last drop of blood, but there's a lot more hints as well. The authoritarian way the cadets are corralled, and the dismissive way the adults speak to them. There's all the ominous discussions that they speculate about what happens to those who wash out, and how they've watched their friends disappear. The very fact of using orphans in the first place, who have no families or anyone who will miss them. But most of all, we have the dehumanizing process of giving them numbers instead of names. Zero Two even says, do we parasites even have names? Coming into obvious conflict with this dehumanizing numbering system is Hiro, who apparently gave Naomi her name. Since Hiro wants to know Zero Two's name as she's being led away, we can infer that names and naming are important to him. I think then it's a reasonable assumption that Hiro is a giver of names to his fellow parasites. Maybe he even named himself. Naomi criticizes him for trying to play the hero. Either way, this sets him up as a humanizing force in opposition to the society or the system that they exist in. His instincts or sense of priorities are out of lockstep with the society in this and probably some other ways. Now, if this inference turns out to be true, I think there will probably come an important moment when Hero bestows a name upon Zero Two. Finally, there actually comes a moment when we see that Plantation 13 has a name of its own. Well, that hardly seems fair. Its name is Karasus, which is potentially two sort of related things. One is that it's the old name of the genus that contains, among other things, cherry trees. And it's also the current subgenus name of the sour cherry. 
Now there's definitely a plant theme going on in this show, with the plantation and plant and the pistol and stamen and all that, but they chose this name specifically. So this could either be a reference to a sour cherry, which is a thing that appears sweet, but is actually sour and tart on the inside, or it could be a reference to cherry trees in general, but probably cherry blossoms in particular. You don't have to watch much anime to realize that cherry blossoms are a ubiquitous feature in Japanese art. For anime, this is particularly common at the very beginning of series. Now partially this is because a lot of series begin during cherry blossom season, because it overlaps where school years begin and end, but it's also common because cherry blossoms in the Japanese aesthetic are heavily associated with the beauty of transient things. Cherry blossoms only last for a week or two, and their sudden beauty and sudden departure is associated with impermanence, and the idea that feeling a sadness about the state of things uh, has its own beauty. An awareness that objects and lives and loves are all ultimately going to fade away just heightens how precious they are to exist right now. The fleeting nature of the things we value gives those things their importance. And accepting this passing and finding it beautiful mirrors an acceptance of one's own mortality, because our lives are one of the things that are going to pass away. Life is one of those fleeting, transient things. No wonder, then, that cherry blossoms show up so often when the course of characters' lives is about to change. And mixed with the wonder of new friends, new paths, and new challenges is a certain sadness that it's all going to eventually end. But that sadness is supposed to heighten it, supposed to make the importance of them seem more acute. Our very lives and our circumstances and the people we meet and our situations are all fleeting. They're all transient. Feeling sadness about this has its own sense of beauty and hopefully helps heighten the appreciation for the things you have while you have them. Like I said, this is an extremely common aesthetic in Japanese art. If you watch much anime, you have noticed it. There's no way it's an accident that they chose this name for this plantation where it looks like our story begins. So then, we are done with the board. We have come to our last two sections, what to watch for and speculation. So new for this series, we're actually gonna keep track of the things we add in these next two sections. That way we can cross them off the list as they are fulfilled or overturned, and we can keep up with the things that we still expect to happen or expect to learn. Now the first section, what to watch for, is all about questions that we expect to be answered and information we expect to get. Speculation is, well, speculation. It's my best guesswork about where the series is headed in the near and long term. It's also always the last section, so if you actually don't like that type of thing, it's very easy to skip. So then, what to watch for? First off, we're given a series of serial numbers assigned to some children this time. Four in total. We have Zero Twos, who's 002. We have Ichigo at 015 and Hiro at 016. And then we have Naomi at 703. Really different from the other three. What we need to watch for is, how are these numbers assigned? Do they have any inherent meaning? Is there something special about being in the Zero series? We want to watch and see why the plants, the large spherical things that move them across the ground, are spherical. And related to that, why do they move across the ground in the first place when they have the power of flight? It's obviously very dangerous. 
So there's a moment when we see that Papa and his neighbor are a projection or a hologram or something. And we need to be watching to see if, A, if that was a secret, if people didn't know that, and B, if it's important. Why, why does it matter if he's not physically there? Related to that same scene, why are there so many adults there? Or, or rather, why are the children surprised to see so many adults? Are children and adults kept segregated in the society? Is it just that orphans have never been around that many adults before? I mean, quite a few adults turned out just to see four pairs of cadets. So maybe there is something there? Relatedly, and I brought this up already, but why are so many adults completely covered up? Why are they completely encased? Why are they hiding as much skin as possible, including most of their face? It does seem to be somewhat related to age, as the younger you are, the less likely you are to be covered up. That actually brings me to another question. Why is Z2's current partner seemingly older than everyone else? Maybe he's not. Maybe he just hit a mad growth spurt very early. But I feel like it's implied that he's much older. Does the age of the pilots really matter? That's a question we're going to need to find out also. Somewhat related to that, there's all kinds of techno babble about the piloting process and all that. Uh, none of it may be important. We're to find out as we go along. But so far, the things that are pointed out about it are probably important and we need to watch to find out why. Like, why does it have to be male and female pairs? Why cannot a single person pilot these things in the first place? Why are they even called parasites? Is there something parasitic about the pilot-Frank's relationship? Or maybe between partners? Let's see, there's a part where Naomi throws her case at Hiro to keep him from following after her, and she says for him to share what's in that case with the others. She, she doesn't have a need for it anymore. So, assuming that it wasn't totally destroyed, what's in the case? Now the thing they're fighting about in that scene is partially that Hiro, despite failing, is being allowed to stay. So, why is he being allowed to stay? What is the favoritism that Naomi is referring to? Who does this favoritism come from? And hopefully we can maybe find out what would have happened to him if he'd stayed even without a potential partner. Lastly, there's a couple of things that are kind of obvious. We're gonna be watching to see if Hero can actually pilot now that he is partnered up with Zero Two. We're gonna be watching to see what the trial run that Doctor referred to is and what the humongous cargo is in that transport plane. We'll be watching, of course, in a general sense to have the details of the world filled out. Who is Ape? What do they administer? What organization does Papa belong to? Is he a religious leader, political leader, military leader? And so on. There's lots of things we don't have filled out yet, but all of those are, I think, obvious questions to ask about the series after the first episode. Finally then, speculation. I actually don't have a whole lot on this, but we will run through what I've got. Now Zero Two gets her name because her serial number is Zero Zero Two. I speculate that there will be a Zero Zero One. Now whether it's an influence on her past or some kind of surprise in the future is anyone's guess. But I think you can account on such a person to exist and matter. Kind of went over this, but I'm not really going to speculate about the technological details. They will likely give us lots of techno babble, but they will probably let us know what's actually important from a plot standpoint and we can then pay attention to that. There's no point in getting worked over now about whether the color of things matters or something else that might turn out to be completely innocuous. Likewise, I'm not gonna to speculate too much about the state of the religion or nation or whatever this is. I think they gave us enough to know that it's dehumanizing and authoritarian, and that's plenty to get started. I think they mostly just wanted to give us a sense of how to feel about it 
Not really what to expect from it, if that makes sense. Um, I speculate that the cadet pairs will be opposites to each other in some respect. The only one of these pairs I can spot so far with the limited characterization we have is the guy that is eating and is drawn in such a way to be out of shape. That is, someone who is represented as being sloppy. And he is paired with the girl who I think is very well put together. Now I'm guessing she is that way because the voice actress they chose for her is Hayami Saori. And she has a very distinctive voice she uses for Ojo characters, uh, well-mannered, fine young ladies. And she's using such a voice here. That sends a strong signal to me that it's going to be that type of character. I think the whole opposites as effective and opposites attract things will probably come into play in this series. And I think this is just going to be one manifestation of that. So then here's the only real big speculation. I think we've been given a false impression of the whole. That is to say that the series as we understand it so far is not how the series is really going to go. Now see, here's what we got so far. We're shown a world that is post-apocalyptic or an outpost in alien lands or some kind of future dystopia. We're then given a threat to the society and a counter to this threat. The counter, however, the dual piloting Franks, has a bit of a catch with the whole partnership thing, so we're actually given two obstacles, the threat and the catch. All of our characters are set up to be working against one or both of these obstacles, and their mixes of personalities will alternately progress us or regress us against them. That is the premise and the expectation we've been given so far, and I don't buy it. I think there will be more to it, a lot more to it. Now, this is a fine track for the bewilderment phase of the series, as the audience is being eased in and trying to find out which characters and which details are really important. But once we have some of the essential details, I expect us to find out that some of our assumptions are incorrect and some new big goal or conflict will peek its head out. Now my thought process on this is basically that this episode had too much conclusion for the setup we were given. We're shown two people who need partners in some way, and then later on a threat to overcome, and then they partner up and they overcome it. We're not gonna get two dozen more episodes of that. Throwing some bigger but similar threats at them would be fine if this was a two hour story, but not for a 12 hour story. I mean, there was really a lot of mystery that they didn't save. They didn't save the mystery of her Klaxosaur blood. They didn't leave us in suspense about whether or not Hero would be able to pilot anything. Any suspense about her devouring him the first time they ride together is suspended as well. The fact that the Franks have a type of transformation, and they show it, and they use it to overcome the Klaxosaur threat? In other words, a lot of the initial mystery is settled already, which suggests to me that we don't have a good view of what the superstructure of the story is at all. This might actually turn out to be a full episode cold open. Now, what type of series or story arc am I projecting instead? Uh, I don't know. Theme is actually probably our best indicator of that at this point, but I don't want to nail any of that down yet. One thing I will guess at, though, is that since there are so many obvious parallels between this and Evangelion, it will almost certainly go down a different path than Evangelion. If for no other reason, then no one's going to take them seriously if they stray too close. 
All right then, that is it. We are over. I know this is gonna be a long one. Don't worry, they're not all gonna be this long. I just don't have that in me for starters. I'm really looking forward to this series. I'm really looking forward to an original story. I'm really looking forward to being current on it as we go through. And like the big nerd that I am, I'm excited to find out which of these themes uh, end up getting a lot of play. So I'll see you next time. Maybe we have some answers. Title music by Russell J. Crowe. Other music licensed from the artists at Audio Jungle. Script, performance, and editing by Theta. Theta is played by Redacted. Original video can be found at youtube.com slash C slash Nearly on Red. And a full list of credits is available at nearlyonred.com. Until next time, thanks for everything.